You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change? And when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. I mean, because you're all going to die anyway. It's only a question of in what order. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We have such an exciting episode today, don't we, Jenny? We do. I'm so excited. (laughs) We are thrilled to welcome Professor Daniel Ogden to the podcast. Professor Ogden has been the main source for so many of our spooky season episodes. Last year, when we covered werewolves in ancient Greece, I used his book, The Werewolf in the Ancient World. It was our main source. It is brilliant. Professor Ogden is the best source for all the creepy goings-on in the ancient world. We've been fans and admirers of his work for a long time, and we're so happy that he's here today. He has a new book called The Dragon in the West, From Ancient Myth to Modern Legend, and it's about, have you guessed it, the history of dragons. I'm excited for that one. (laughs) I'm so excited. Welcome, uh, Professor Ogden. Well, thank you for um, having me on your your podcast, and uh, thank you for those kind words. I think I'll struggle to live up to them. I don't think so at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so um, so we're here to talk about witches and magic in the ancient Greek and Roman world and all about that. When we talk about magic, what are we talking about? What role did magic play in people's lives and how did the magic system work? Uh, well, this, I suppose this is a version of the, the, the defined magic question, isn't it? Which I've, al- which I've always eschewed. <laughs> Getting us started off right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a, f- a fairly boring answer to start with, which is, you know, I mean, magic, like all words relating to abstract concepts, it's just a word that people use. And people can use it in all sorts of ways. Um, very often there's an agenda behind the use of it. And, you know, you might want to ask what that agenda is. One uh, thing that's, uh, that, that emerges, I think, from the Greek evidence in particular, is that somebody who's a magician is often... A professional rival, somebody who's doing, who's actually trying to do the same sorts of things that you are, but you're you're looking for that uh, to to establish a critical distance or a critical difference from them. 
a couple of, ex- of obvious examples here from, from ancient Greece. In the Hippocratic Treatise on the Sacred Disease, the, uh, the author of that treatise, which is you know, about cures for epilepsy, establishes his own, his own credentials, the, 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 the specialness of his own position, by laying into people he calls the mages. And he abuses them for attempting to treat epilepsy by dietary prescription, you know, by saying you should eat this, not that, whatever. As he moves on to his own uh, cures for epilepsy, he forgets he says that. And what does he do? Prescribes, makes dietary prescriptions. And uh, similarly, um, Plato, Plato Socrates, abuses people called mages for, you know, whatever, trying to mess around with people's souls. Now, if I asked you, <laughs> what is the one thing that Plato and Socrates are attempting to do in their various works? It's to mess around with people's souls, isn't it? So again, you, you can't help feeling that, you know, uh, people in the street, in the classical Athenian street, would have said, well, hang on, well, what is the difference here? So the concept of magic can be used in that kind of, shall I say, dynamic, discursive way. But there are other ways of looking at it, of course. There's the world of story, the world of um, very, very often folk taley story, uh, which pervades antiquity. For example, the wonderful stories of, of witches in Apuleius's Metamorphoses. No one, I think, is going to dispute that those are witches. Again, there's no, I don't think there's any particular agenda about magic as such. Uh, on Apuleius's part in that text, maybe in other texts, but they're just they're just there for the sake of the story, aren't they? They're just they're just part of a good story, and no doubt there were people. They're actually quite hard to get hold of. No doubt there were people in the ancient world that did in fact own the term magician and say yes, yes, I am a magician. Uh, maybe the people that wrote the so-called uh, Greek magical papyri, the, the magical handbooks, or other learned treatises uh, on various aspects of magic. Pliny is always banging on about the people he calls the mages and these various mad recipes um, that they have. Uh, and he is presumably getting those from some serious, very serious, very detailed published magical handbooks of his own, um, books which probably didn't much resemble the Greek magical papyri as we know them. There's a, something curious going on there. Pliny is, again, abusing the mages for the absurdity, the ridiculousness of their of their prescriptions, particularly in you know one of my favourite bits in his massive treatment of of what the mages do with every single bit of the hyena, every single body part of the hyena has a different magical function, uh, and yet he's reproducing this stuff in such massive, thorough detail. So clearly his his real attitude to it is not quite the same as the expressed attitude, not quite the same as the editorialising. Think. I mean, unless unless he's just being compendious for the uncritically compendious, um, which I don't think he is. So clearly, he does think there's something in it, despite despite what he says. But again, the mages are always the bad guys, aren't they? They're always the wrong guys. There. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's sorry. That's uh, that, those are those are some some thoughts on the use of the word magic. Um, no, nothing like a nothing like a definition. I'm so curious about these these people who were owning the term. And writing these handbooks, and there are some handbooks that still exist today. Is that is that true? Yes. Um, again, it's quite hard to get a handle on who these people were. So yeah. Um, so again, there's this massive corpus of papyri, which we call the Greek magical papyri. Um, they're just being re-edited actually at the moment, but uh, in the standard edition which we've used for a century now, I suppose. There's a oh gosh, I don't know about a, I'm going to say about 130 off the top of my head. 
and of those, the first 20 or so are basically recipe books. The, the, other, the others are sort of practical cursed texts which have been you know, uh, deployed in, in actual spells. But the first 20 or so are, are recipe books. And one of them, the so-called number four, PGM, uh, number four is massive. I mean, it is the size of a size of a, a modern book, really. And they have all sorts of spells um, in them, jumbled together. Seldom easy to see uh, if there's any sort of serious, meaningful sequence. There does seem to be an element of jumble to it. And these spells are full of all sorts of la- languages. I mean, well, I mean, the bulk of these texts are are Greek, but parts of them are Demotic, Demotic Egyptian. But beyond that, they do incorporate bits of garbled bits of other languages too, Hebrew, etc. And they mix in a lot of gods from all over the place. You know, I mean, any any source of power will do. You know, so they're very they're very interesting texts. Difficult to know who wrote them. Hellenized Egyptians, Egyptianizing Greeks, <laughs> maybe a bit of both. Well, that's the great thing, right? That cultural exchange, because I feel like a lot of times people just think that like, or at least before I got really deep into this research, you think like the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians all existed in these silos. But of course, it, it wasn't like that. No, especially not in Alexandria, Ptolemaic, Roman Egypt generally, but especially Alexandria. Uh, I mean, from the point of its foundations, Alexandria was a trilingual city with massive Greek, Egyptian and Jewish populations. And that, that, that mix um, is precisely the sort of the you know the, the, the cultural blend that comes out in the in the Greek magical papyri. And I suppose the other thing that I'd want to say about that is although there's loads of spells all mixed up together on all sorts of things, many of them are sort of meta spells about you know preparing the magician, um, upgrading him to a different category of power, this sort of stuff. You know, not all not all the spells you know have a simple, tangible, uh, immediate purpose, but the majority of them, the vast majority of them, are to do with love, love and sex. If you want to get a glimpse, because we are talking about the particular, well, a particular place, not so much a particular time, because I mean, these these spell books, by the way, tend to be um, third, fourth, fifth century. They're quite late AD. They're quite late in ancient terms, but there's a deep Hellenistic tradition behind them. But again, we are sort of limited by in place, perhaps. But nonetheless, if you want to get a glimpse of what the ancients most valued magic for and wanted to use it for, then it seems to me that those papyri suggest that the thing that was most important in their lives was love and sex. Plus a change. That is fascinating. How did the magic system work? Like, how, how did people use this magic to gain love or sex, if, if that is what's happening? Well, uh, I'm not sure exactly what it would mean to say magic system. I mean, there are all sorts of ways of engaging with magic. You know, you could uh, do your own little home made of magic in the privacy of your of your of your your own home, or you could approach you know a great and distinguished learned magician with a very long beard <laughs> uh, and get him to do all his complicated rites. You know, uttering his scary spells for you. You know, and so there's there's, there's a whole gamut there. We're all magicians, men. If we're fixing on the word magician, magos, magos, then almost certainly yes. Very occasionally in late antiquity, you get um, a phrase like uh, guna, in Greek, guna, magos, uh, which means woman, mage. And I think that that term is probably intended paradoxically. So it's not a ex- completely excluded category. But 
that whole mage stuff does tend to be attached to to, to magic. I mean, the I mean, many of the spells in the Greek magical papyri, for example, the love spells. I mean, they do typically focus on women, but there's no reason they shouldn't be flipped for men. Now, women were certainly <laughs> involved in very similar things. Not one needn't say identical things. One shouldn't say identical things, probably, but very similar things. But they were not characterised as mages; they were characterised as witches. There are a few occasions, occasions in ancient literature where somebody says something that implies witch is to mage as you know, woman is to man. That they are the same things, but you know, if you're a woman, you're a witch, and if you're a man, you're a mage. But in general, in general, I think they are sort of conceptualised a bit differently. Certainly, they're regarded as being all part of the same ballpark, but they are. I think you know the, the emphases are different. There's obviously quite a loaded context about the difference between a witch and a wizard or a magician, and a lot of that comes from much later in medieval times and stuff like that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I wanted to like bring that up just to see like in ancient times how that worked and if it had a similar context or not really. Well, we need we need to make this big contrast between documentary evidence on the one hand and literary evidence on the other. It's in the literary evidence where we get very different profiles constructed for mages uh, and witches. Now, there are quite a few portraits of, of mages in ancient literature, although one has to sort of scrabble around from them a bit, and they don't, they don't sort of leap to the eye so much. They're often quite, um, they're often quite sort of bold, uh, sort of brief descriptions. I mean, you might think, for example, of um, some of the some of the figures in Lucian's Philopsudes or Lover of Lies. Um, you have again a few very small sort of pen portraits of, of magicians there. Nothing to com- compare really with the the expansive, lurid, detailed portraits of of these sort of terrible Gothic, bloodthirsty witches that dominate Latin poetry. The Odyssey, you know, you've got Circe, you've got Medea. Yes, Medea. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, she's Medea. There's a passing reference to Medea, well, a uh, proto Medea in the Iliad, actually. Yes. So. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, the yeah, I mean, the, the the Greek portraits of witches, of which we don't have. Well, we we have some big ones, although they're all a bit anomalous in one way or another. We have Circe, of course, in the Odyssey, whom I emphatically <laughs> consider to be a witch, or at any rate to be, and consider that her representation. Uh, draws on the paradigm of the witch. Let me at least say that we have Medea in Euripides, of course, the famous play. Although she's that, that, that's a weird one too, because I mean Euripides sort of has to underplay her magic abilities. Uh, abilities. What do we see her doing? Well, we only see her really making the poison. No, we didn't actually see her making it, handing over the poison wedding dress to, to Princess Glauke. I guess he has to downplay her magical abilities radically to fit her into a tragedy because if she has you know the normal full range of powers of you know the greatest witch in the world which she's supposed to be then she's not going to end up in that situation the thing that witches do above all is engage in love magic if your husband's husband's eye is straying then you have the solution ready to hand for some reason media can't do that she so she has to tone down to being a sort of a regular struggling exploited put upon housewife doesn't she that's so fascinating that like witches mainly would have the that's what they did like love and sex magic was <laughs> was their thing so she shouldn't have even been in that situation exactly yes it's a, the whole play is a, a huge paradox yeah and then you then you do get the elaborate portrait of Simaitha in Theocritus's second idyll but again what is she I mean it's a very complicated text that I mean she seems to be like an amateur playing at witchcraft rather than a you know the great experienced professional. So 
not Simaitha, but Cersei and Medea do terrible things. I mean, Medea chops up her own brother, doesn't she, at one point? I mean, apart from anything else. She does, and she kills both of her children. Like, you know, she does one redeeming thing, which is try to poison Theseus. But that's just my feelings about Theseus. <laughs> well, I don't think, any, I don't think any, any, anybody could object to her treatment of Pelias either. It's pretty, it's pretty grim, but, you know, but he asked for it, didn't he? So that, that's fair enough. I mean, she did trick him. But then again, like, you look at some of the stuff that, like, the gods do, who she's not that far removed from, right? Like, her dad is, like, an evil magician, right? And a god. So, you know, I don't know. What laws apply then? Dionysus did something similar, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think, I mean, I think Circe is more, is, when you think about Circe, she's more terrible than you first realize in, in, in the Odyssey, um, if you think through the implication of it. So, I mean, it all comes right in the end. For, for a disuse, but she's transformed his companions into pigs and put them in the pigsties. Now, it's clear that she's also in the past transformed other people into lions and wolves and they're hanging around her house as, as a, a disuse's crew arrives. But there's only one thing you do with pigs, isn't there? You, know, you, don't, you don't get wool from them, you don't get milk from them, you eat them. If you think about that, that, makes, that does make Cersei look rather more terrible. To pursue that idea even further, I mean, it could well be, okay, so we know that the pigs are humans. We know that the lions and the wolves outside a house are transformed humans. What about that big deer that Odysseus catches when he first arrives on her island? Catches and cuts up and eats with his companions. So has he been tricked into cannibalism? When you think about it, Circe is pretty terrible in the Odyssey, yet she doesn't somehow <laughs> make that impression, does she? She... She seems nicer. <laughs> Inscrutable, but nicer. She does. I mean, there's a, there's a sense of violence, right, with these strange men coming to her island that, you know, you're like, well, maybe uh, they would be better off not <laughs> running right over my house as a person alone with all these nymphs who I didn't ask for, who also live on my island, who I guess fall under my protection. Yeah, the sense of threat. Yes, that's, well, that's a good point. But I guess I mean the point. But I suppose the point I'm 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 working towards here is just how different how different the Roman witches are. Because although although Greek witches can be bad, there's nothing like the uh, the horror that attaches to the, the the Roman witches, which is nothing like that is associated with them. Of course, there's kind of there's kind of a, a sort of an evidence gap. I mentioned Simaitha, who is um, who is who Theocritus is writing about in the early third century BC. Though we don't get anything really until Horace at the end of the first century BC. You know, God knows what has gone on in, in Greek, Greek and or let's say Greek tradition before that. Maybe the Greeks have invented horrible witches, which the Romans are then imitating. And maybe that's just all been lost in that sort of Hellenistic gap. However, I doubt it. I do feel that the bloodthirsty horror, the Gothic, I can't get away from this word Gothic, the Gothicness of, uh, of Roman witches. Is a distinctively Roman thing, you know, and I think it, I think that uh, ties in with Roman tastes generally. You know, you know, like watching people being chopped up and, and eaten in the amphitheatre. You know, I think it's all of a all of a piece. <laughs> but um, I mean, as I've already argued recently in, in a little book I wrote on the Strix witch, I think the way the Romans present their witches is heavily influenced by thinking about Strixes, who are a rather distinctive kind of witch, witches that turn themselves into some sort of raptor, an owl maybe of some sort, and in that form penetrate houses in order to steal, kill, 
or interfere with the internal organs of babies. I mean, these, these are basically child-killing demons. This is kind of like the Roman equivalent of, uh, of the Greek Lamia. This is a pretty widespread tradition that we see in a lot of places, different kinds of demons that attack children or babies or women in childbirth or pregnant women. It seems to be a real fear that spans cultures or maybe comes from a, a single place, you know? So tell me more about the Strix witch and, and how different it is from the Greek depiction of a witch. So, the, you know, the function of a, of a Strix witch is, is to invade a house and invade a body. I mean, sometimes they're thought just to sort of slash it apart, I guess. Sometimes they're thought to drink blood. They're very vampiric. Somehow to be able to penetrate the body of a child imperceptibly, interfere with its organs or remove an organ again imperceptibly, so that the child just slowly fails and dies. They have the challenge that the Strix faces is first to penetrate the house and its various defences, which could be a shut door or various talismanic plants, including garlic, Again, vampire territory there. And then the second challenge is to penetrate the body of the child that they're after. And sometimes, incidentally, it does seem that they, they were capable of something like soul flight, so they could just turn themselves into like wispy souls and penetrate through the cracks of a house. So this is a pretty terrible thing. It does seem to me that all the famous standard portraits of witches that we get in Latin literature, so we talk about Horus's Canidia in six poems, the various witches briefly referred to in Latin love elegy, Lucan's Glorious, Erichtho in Book 6 of the Pharsalia. The witches of, um, that attack, attack the house and steal the baby in Petronius' Satyricon, and, and especially all the fantastic witches, Merry Pantheon and all the others in, um, in Apuleius' Metamorphoses. These are all, it seems to me, influenced by this notion of the, of the Strix. And that, I think, very much colours the way those, those witches are presented. That, is, that seems to me is the sort of the critical difference between we might call the Greek witch and the Roman witch. Circe and Medea are relatively kind of glamorous, right? You know, they're supposed to be quite attractive and seductive in some ways. Is that true of Roman witches as well? No, not at all. I mean, they are. I mean, if I if I ask, as it were, uh, your your listeners to think of a, an image of a witch just like that, without you know, without any further context, they're going to be thinking of a sort of an, like an old hag, wizened, warty. Maybe green, you know, the pointy hat. We're talking Wizard of Oz, you know, we're talking about the, um, the transformed queen in Disney Stone White, you know, we have a very clear stereotype of a, of a witch. Well, that image of a witch, that is, that is exactly how the witches in, um, they don't have pointy hats, I'm afraid. But apart from that, that is how, that is how the witches of Roman literature are, are portrayed. They are basically hags. Again, Horace's Canidia, when she's frightened away from a, a, a spell that she's making in a cemetery, she, she and her companion, they leave behind a wig and a set of false teeth as they, as they run off. So that, that tells you, that tells you, you know, the sort of ladies we're looking at. Right. So people who have to disguise their appearance to appear, I suppose the implication is less quote-unquote hag-like. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how successful that's supposed to be, however. Yeah, I, I asked that question because when we were covering the Lamia like and the Mbuza and I think I looked at the Strix as well the interesting thing to me is like the Greek witches and even the sort of vampiric creatures they appear sort of young they're tricking you right into thinking there's something else whereas like the Roman ones it's kind of on the tin does what it says on the tin right and the interesting thing to me about the Strixes versus sort of the Lamia is like Lamia always felt like kind of a sympathy like it's maybe a young woman ish looking who has lost her child whereas these are 
older women in appearance who are just sort of taking the life of that child. And I think it really speaks to sort of the fear of aging and women who have gone through a cycle in their life where they are no longer sort of producing children for the Roman state, which was one of those things that Augustus made very clear he wanted. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, it's easy to, to say that um, there's, a, there's a misogyny in uh, Roman portraits of witches. I just want to um, suggest um, a provocative, a, a partial, partial counter, counterpoint. No, not with witches in general, but specifically with strict witches and then on the Greek side with Lamias. Uh, again, you might say that these in themselves are, you know, misogynistic constructions. Uh, and perhaps there is, there's always going to be a, a level at which you can't deny that. But what, what is the function of a child killing demon? It seems to me that the function of a child killing demon is to explain the otherwise inexplicable sudden deaths or slow failing deaths of babies, small children. Now, if you didn't have child-killing demons as an explanation for that phenomenon, who would be getting the blame for those deaths? The mothers. So, it's, it, so it does seem to me that, although there may well be something misogynistic about these things, these concepts actually have a useful function in preserving the lives of young mothers. So to that extent, one could argue that, you know, it's... <laughs> I'm not going to say the, the, the Strix is a feminist concept, but one can look at it more benignly, seems to me, and more sympathetically that way. You know, that's actually super fascinating because to me, we just did this whole um, giant arc on gender and the patriarchy and how the patriarchy in ancient Greece and Rome constructed gender and how it turned women against other women in a certain sense. And I'm seeing that here, you know, this idea of turning younger women against older women. Like if you, I don't know if this is how this actually happened in real life, but if you look at a younger woman giving birth to a baby, the baby dies, the person in the community that you might blame would be an older woman who maybe she lives by herself, maybe she has herbal remedies that she gives out to people. She is somebody that the community might consider a witch or a strix, and that is kind of taking older women and making them a cultural scapegoat. Yes, I mean, the, all the evidence we have for, for Strixes is, it is, you know, fantasy literature. Uh, I'm not aware of any case, documented case, I mean, maybe, you know, these sorts of cases don't get into the, in, into the evidence, where there was a pogrom on the local old woman after, after a baby died. Yeah, I mean, one feels sure, given the all-pervasiveness of this way of thinking, there must have been occasions on which, on which that happened. There must have been. But I would have, I would have thought more, for the most part, that wasn't going to be the result of a, you know, of a, of a baby dying. Well, it's also fascinating, right? Because when we were talking about vampires, we talked about how disease and illness creep into a family, right? So when you have a baby who dies unexpectedly like that, and maybe somebody else gets sick in the house, like you can see how having an explanation for that rather than either Unfortunately, the baby just had poor health or conditions weren't sanitary enough or... Nursing. Just hanging out with a friend of mine who had a baby and we were talking about how hard it is to nurse and how, you know, it is not guaranteed that you will produce enough milk to sustain a baby. Yeah, or you left the window open and a wild animal got in. Like, rather than putting the fault on the parents, it allows a different way to displace your grief, which in some ways is kind of healthy because the infant mortality rate was so high. So I, I kind of in a lot of sense, really like that as well. And it, for a different reason, because the psychology of, you know, 
having these children. And then, you know, a lot of them didn't make it to one or two. Like sometimes they didn't even name them until they were a little bit older. It is kind of nice to think that they weren't always beating themselves up. Yes. You were talking about um, this phenomenon being so widespread amongst so many different cultures. The associates of Lamia, demons with name derived from Gelo, things like that, they were still flourishing actively, it seems, in the 19th century in Greece. Not to talk about other places. Yeah, we have a sort of a manuscript with a sort of um, spell against Galuda or something like that. I don't forget exactly what the form of the name is being copied out at that point. So presumably held to be of value and currency and, and relevance. Then it seems to have melted away. Now, a few years ago, I examined a very good dissertation by a, a Finnish scholar called Hetta Björkland on the long durée, really, of, of certain aspects of child, child killing demons. And I was, I was talking to her after, after the examination. I was, because I love, I love folklore, obviously. <laughs> and, and I was, I was saying to her, isn't it, isn't it such a pity? It's such a pity that Gello, for example, I mean, because Gello actually has origins, originally in a male demon, strangely, but, uh, in Mesopotamia. So we've had basically 4,000 years of, of, of these chaps. <laughs> and I was saying to Heta, isn't it a pity that they're extinct? You know, that we sort of, we just miss them. <laughs> Yeah, by a hundred years, and she was and she was very sort of emphatic and serious in her response, and she said, "No, it isn't. Child killing demons exist because babies die." The implication being, of course, that we don't need them anymore because they don't babies don't die so much. And it depends on where you are in the world and and what kind of access to medical care you have. Yeah. Oh yes, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure there are parts of the world where, indeed, where demons of this sort do indeed continue to continue to thrive. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? 
Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Shall we talk about curse tablets? And I think this does tie into witches and, and just how the magical world worked. Not sure if this is more Greek or Roman or both, but we understand like in the Greek and Roman world, curses were incredibly popular and you can find evidence of them in Roman homes, places like Bath or Pompeii. And how did how did curse magic work? And what is the strangest curse you've ever come across in your research? Right. So we're talking about curse tablets. Um, so many have been found since I last sort of seriously worked on them myself, which was a quarter of a century ago. I'm going to guess that there's probably about two and a half thousand of them now known. Um, these are from all countries around the Mediterranean and you know, all countries of the Roman Empire. So, And Britain is, Britain is particularly well off for them, partly due to a, a massive cash in, in, in Bath. And uh, these are typically brief curses written on rolled up bits of lead, which are then given to underworld powers, somehow or other, to enact. And they can be put in graves, and the expectation is either that the ghost that lives in the grave will enact the curse or possibly that will take it to an underworld god that will enact it. Um, or they can be dropped into so-called underground bodies of, of water, which means wells or springs, things like that. So they, they were putting lead in their drinking water. Well, if a spring is used for drinking water, yes. I mean, I, I don't think they would put it. I'm not sure that they were going in such, going in, in such quantities that they would have a I mean, I mean, it's nothing compared to a lead, a lead, uh, a lead water pipe, is it? For example, you know, sometimes you know the, the curse is just sort of would have, despite that sort of entrusting to underworld powers, just seems to operate in its own terms. You know, I bind just by saying the, the binding or writing the binding. You know, you expect that to have an effect on the world out there and, and the binding to happen. Sometimes they're more sort of mechanistic in that you know you, you really do envisage that you know the ghost is going to or, or the god. Is going to personally do the binding for you. These tablets um, are, are said to fall into five uh, broad categories. So the first is strangely, and the, the earliest category is actually legal disputes. Interesting, huh? That makes so much sense because a lot of the stuff we know comes from legal disputes, right? The stuff that's written down that has carried through. Like I'm just thinking about the trial of Phryne, for example. Yes. Well, in some ways it makes sense. In some ways it's sort of paradoxical. I mean, I think it's paradoxical because, you know, we associate the law and the forensic speeches that come down to us as being sort of models of rationality, you know, and you might think, well, these are the, these are the last sorts of people that are going to get involved in magic. Of course, there are all sorts of old-fashioned prejudices about magic there. But I think the reason that these curse tablets began amongst lawyers, if indeed they did, is because actually that was the class of people above all in 500 BC, that's when they start, that could write. <laughs> so that's, that's why they start there. I, I think probably there, there were sort of non-written antecedents, which, you know, which uh, voodoo dolls, things like that, which we can't pin down so much now. What role did curse tablets play in the legal process? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't suppose they were sort of in the legal process as such. I mean, they they would be sort of just uh, on the side, wouldn't they? So the curse tablets we find, the legal ones say, you know, typically bind the tongues of the advocates so and so, or the advocates of so and so. So I think if you're you know you're going into court for your big fight, and either you or your lawyer, probably your lawyer, I would think, 
your advocate is is going to be making this curse on the side, you know, just to give a little sort of extra help. A little bit of an insurance policy. Exactly. Yes. You know, belt and braces. So that's one category. Another is trade, where different traders are sort of trying to bind and restrict, restrain the trade of each other. Then there are sort of pure competition curses, core competitions, sporting competitions of various sorts. From the Roman Empire, some fantastic curse tablets where charioteers try to bind each other and their horses. And then, of course, love. Love, of course. And the, the love tablets are interesting in all sorts of ways. I'll, I'll come back to them. And um, then the final category is a slightly different one, so-called prayers for justice. And they don't actually involve binding curses as such. They are prayers to gods, typically to get stolen stuff back, or at any rate, to, to punish the thieves that stole the stuff, even if you're not going to get it back. The tablets to do with love and sex are very interesting. So the curses use this binding idiom, this, this binding, restraining idiom. And it does seem still, it's a complicated story, it does seem still that in origin they were typically used in a rather awkward way. That is to say, you're in a, you're in a sort of a, a triangular situation. And what you do is you use the binding curse to restrain the desirability of the person that's the rival for the person you want. We do find the curse is going all ways, you know, so men against women, women against men, men against men, women against women. That seems a little bit sclerotic, a little bit awkward, doesn't it? I mean, you, you can imagine that what people really wanted curses to do is, you know, you just say, well, I want that woman over there, get her for me. You don't want to worry about rivals. You say, that, give, get me that. And so, and so there's a strange evolution, but quite an early evolution, it seems, in the love tablets, where the, the idiom of binding and restraining is transformed in a sort of conditional way. So, so what you go, what you say is, stop her, you know, my whatever my intended, <laughs> stop her from eating, drinking, having sex, praying to the gods, doing anything until she comes to me. So you you change you change the way the binding is used, and then eventually you you say things even more directly. You say, bind her to me. So the binding stays, but the the way the way the concept of binding is uh, sort of evolves under the the pressure of what people really want from the tablets, it seems to me. Now, the, 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 way, the reason I wanted to talk about cursed tablets before is this, and we, again, it's talking about, talking about men and women, gender roles and magic. It's not always easy to figure out the sex of people making tablets. But so far as we can tell that, in terms of the loved magic tablets, they are overwhelmingly made by men. I say there are female examples, um, but they're overwhelmingly made by men. I think by about four to one. So far as we can tell, I say the, the you know it's, it's it's often hard to, to to identify the gender of the maker of a tablet. So that's documentary evidence. One can quibble about stats, but that's documentary evidence. That's hard evidence of what was actually being done. You're always sort of directed to think that the women are the ones who are always like love crazy, love sick. They would be the ones getting curses done. Exactly. If you look at if you look at Roman literature, well, Greek and Roman literature, it's women, witches making love spells of various sorts against men. So one sort of way that people have looked at this in the past is to say, oh, this is yet another example of men being beastly. <laughs> okay? They make all these horrid love spells against women, and then they blame the women for doing it against them. Yeah, that's a little bit of what I was picking up on, is this is another way of controlling women. There's probably some truth in that. I mean, that's, probably one can't completely dismantle that. But what one, one could say, for example, is that maybe the gender specialised in different sorts of magic. So when we do see the women making love spells in mainly Roman literature, a bit, of, a bit of Greek literature, they are only occasionally using curse tablets. Usually it's things like love potions, 
things which you might think belong more centrally in a female realm. You could bring literacy in here. I mean, again, it's there are issues about exactly whether you actually wrote your own curse tablet or got a specialist to do it for you. But nonetheless, you could say that maybe men tended to go towards curse tablets because they lived in a, well, some of them lived in a world of literacy, whereas women tended to use other forms of magic which didn't depend on literacy. So you could say that there, there was a sort of a gendering of varieties of magic. And potentially there could be even like a class difference here. Like, I don't know what was more expensive to have a cursed tablet written out or to go visit someone who does a love potion. Could be one costs more and this is what you can afford and that's where you're going. It's quite difficult to know how much ancient magicians charged <laughs> for, their, for their services. I mean, there, there are, con there are contrary, quite contraindications. You know, sometimes they're regarded as sort of like cheap hucksters who would hang out in the sort of the, the darker corners of the marketplace. Sometimes they're regarded as, you know, great professionals who would command serious bags of gold for their services. I bet they were all, all levels like sex workers. Sure. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. And probably if you're, if you're not necessarily literate, then someone writing something down, they could write anything down. Like, I don't know, I might be more comfortable with something like a love spell if I couldn't read what was on that curse tablet. Yes, but actually, but again, but then going back to literacy, one of the most interesting tablets, oh, you, you did ask me about which is my favourite or my weirdest tablet. I'm going to give you two answers. One, one, one of them is one of the curse tablets from Bath, which to look at just looks like a row of sevens. And the theory there is that it was actually written by an illiterate person. <laughs> and and what's nice, what's interesting about that is, I mean, I don't think that the, 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 the illiterate person really thought they were successfully writing, but as the, the, the editor of these, 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 these tablets has suggested, the great Roger Tomlin, the person that wrote that tablet was confident that the goddess, Sulis, these are all dedicated to the, devoted to the goddess in Bath, Sulis, she would know what, what you meant. You know, which is kind of, kind of like reassuring and sort of gives you a sort of warm feeling, really, doesn't it? Even when writing a curse, you know, the, the, the goddess would, out, would look out for you. Okay, I know what you mean. That doesn't exactly say what you want, but I know what you mean. Well, it's a goddess. They, she should know, right? You know? Exactly. 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 So, I mean, so presumably no professional was involved in that. Presumably that was just somebody doing their own thing. I think my favourite, because it's not exactly the weirdest, but my favourite, my favourite curse tablet is a very long curse tablet from Morgos, where a chap has just had enough of being harassed by this, by his neighbour, as it must be, a, must be a neighbour. He and his wife have been constantly harassed by this neighbour. And he just lays out all the lists of the outrages that this, 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 this guy has perpetrated against him. And he's just had enough. And you can just, you can just feel the, the frustration and the bitterness in the curse tablet. That's, that, that's why it's my favourite. Bear in mind that, okay, sometimes one had to use a professional, but otherwise, you're writing these curse texts and you're putting them in a grave or down a well. You're not expecting any living person ever to read these texts or see these texts. So these texts, although they're in many ways formulaic, they're, they're, they're also from the heart. And it seems to me that when we read these texts, especially, especially the meaty, expansive ones like that one, you know, it's like the teenage girl with her, her diary with the lock on it. You know what I mean? You're getting to know things about that person that not even the, clo the person closest to them in life knew. You're getting right into the heart of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago and you're knowing things about them that nobody else knew and you're experiencing passions that nobody else knew. I think that's pretty amazing. That is fascinating. 
I was also reading this book called Invisible Romans. It's an excellent book, and it's about people who are not like the upper class aristocracy in Roman history. And it talks about a lot about, you know, what their concerns were, who they were, kind of really tries to parse that out. And one of the sources it seems like they work from a lot is is curse tablets, if I remember correctly. And so that's that's a question I have is do you find that in terms of class, can you get a better read on who the non-aristocracy was and what their concerns were by looking at class tablets? Like, did people of the lower classes, the, I suppose the working classes, use these a lot? Like, enslaved people, did they use them? Well, it, it can, of course, be difficult to know the class of the person making a curse tablet. In the old days, 100 years ago, of course, there were all sorts of prejudice about, you know, this being sort of low magic and therefore something that must, by definition, belong to the underclass. That's not, not an assumption we would make now. But, I mean, there are ways of figuring out, I suppose, that these tablets were often made by people of relatively modest means. So, for example, if you're making a cursed tablet because you've had your cloak stolen, then the theft of your cloak is a big deal, is a big financial hit. Probably not, you know, the richest person in the town. There are some cursed tablets uh, written by or on behalf of slaves, that explicitly. Again, there's uh, one cursed tablet which is written to ensure that a lady called Politoria, I think it is, isn't returned to a workhouse or something like that. She's clearly a slave. And actually, one of the this is actually a, not a curse tablet, but an inscription about curse tablets. And again, this is from a, a town in Roman Italy where the town is giving is, gives thanks to the fact that some curse tablets have been discovered, fixed to a grave, cursing the town council. And because they were discovered, they could be unravelled and therefore deactivated. I know, and it says, and they were they were they were attached by a wicked public slave. The the inscription says, this discovery was so important that they actually put up this inscription celebrating this undoing of the curse. What I find fascinating about that is that the great and good of this town really believed that they could be put into the power of a slave simply by virtue of the slave making a curse using a curse tablet. You can't really think it through, can you? I mean, if curse tablets really were as effective as that, then how could the social order stay in place? Why weren't enslaved people making curse tablets all the time? Maybe they were, but uh, I guess maybe they weren't as effective as they hoped. Sadly. Did witches have a role in making curse tablets? I know we talked about the, the professional role versus is this type of magic people just did for themselves. That's a tough one. It's difficult to pull the two sides of the cardigan together on that. I mean, there is evidence, of, as I say, for curse tablets being made for, if not by, women. On the one hand, on the other hand, are there literary portraits of people we call witches dealing with curse tablets? I'm not sure. There's, Ovid does have a brief portrait of an old woman teaching young girls how to bind a mouth by sewing up a, a fish's mouth. That's not exactly a curse tablet, but it's very much akin to a binding curse. Well, it is a binding, it is a binding curse, but it's not using a tablet. I and mean, that's as close as I can get for you. I mean, again, an old woman, she's not explicitly designated as a witch, but an old woman teaching. <laughs> she's doing something jolly similar to making a cursed tablet. Off the top of my head, that's as close as I can get to you. I mean, yes, do I, do I think that women in the ancient world identify themselves as witches? Gone involved with cursed tablets? Yes, I think they probably did. But the, yeah, the, but the little bit hard to join up the dots formally on that one. <laughs> I wanted to learn more about how necromancy worked in ancient Greece and Rome and what they what they thought they were going to do, what was going on there. Right. Okay. Well, necromancy. 
all sorts of lurid things happen uh, in literature, in, in literary descriptions of necromancy. Why don't I begin by saying what I think probably happened in, in real terms? That's what I was more interested in, because the word conjures up something, right? But what actually did the people think was going to happen? Okay, well, I, well, let me say, first of all, I mean, because the word necromancy is used quite broadly, even, even now, uh, it was sort of expanded in the medieval period. Uh, I use the word quite in its you know, strict etymological sense, which is deriving divinations, prophecies from the dead. So typically, I think one would go to an oracle of the dead. These oracles of the dead clearly didn't have any sort of official status. We shouldn't think of them being elaborate shrines like Delphi or anything like that. You know, there's no, there's no epigraphy associated with any of them. There's a bit of, maybe a bit of building work here and there. They didn't really fall under the control, as far as I can see, of states. So I think they, the usage of these places was pretty uh, informal. However, the traditions of them thrived in literature. So people must have been using them, you know, if only because they read the stories in the literature and, and followed through with it. Typically, I think what you would do is you would make, you would make uh, offerings to the dead, sacrifice a sheep, probably go to sleep on its fleece and incubate. And you would expect that the ghost of the dead person would speak to you in your sleep. And by the way, in terms of oracles of the dead, there are four sort of big oracles of the dead. Uh, there's one at the Acheron River in Thesprotia, which was identified with uh, the place that Odysseus went down. And uh, famously in Herodotus, Periander sends a messenger to, to talk to the ghost of his wife, Melissa. There's the Avernus Oracle in Lake Avernus, the big round lake, a volcanic lake in Campania. And that's where Aeneas goes down to consult the ghosts in the Aeneid. There's one at Heraclea Pontica, that's on the, the south coast of the Black Sea. And there's one at the very bottom of the Marni Peninsula, the southernmost part of mainland Greece, the bottom of Peloponnese, a very famous entrance to, to the underworld as well. So that's basically what one, one would have done. But there are sort of more lurid forms of necromancy. In the Greek magical papyri, to go back to them, we find a spell whereby, again, it's a bit obscure what's going on, but Essentially, you're finding, you're getting the skull of a dead man. You're performing various rites on it. Uh, and then, again, you're going to sleep and you're expecting the ghost of the, the dead man to come speak to you in your sleep. So there's a, there's a, sort, of, a sort of common theme there, a sort of incubation theme. And then I would say that the more lurid, brilliant descriptions of necrom necromancy that we get in the literature are imaginative extrapolations of that sort of magical technique. So, for example, the most famous of all is, again, is, is Erichtho in Lucan's Pharsalia, Book 6. Sextus Pompey wants to know how the civil war is going to turn out. Uh, so he goes to Erichtho, the Salian witch, witches are often the Salian, and she pulls a dead body off a battlefield, seemingly one with its throat cut, interestingly, um, given, given that it has to talk. And uh, she pumps all sorts of magical ingredients. She has a cauldron. Again, all your stereotypes about witches. She has a cauldron full of magical ingredients, some of them impossible ingredients, you know, flying snakes, this kind of stuff. And she pumps all this, this stuff uh, into the body to, to, to reanimate it, all sorts of prayers and threats to the gods. And uh, she gets the, the soul, the soul has, as it were, you know, been detached from the body to manifest itself. But it's too frightened to, to go back into the, into the corpse to reanimate it. It's kind of like dying all over again, as it's said. And she whips the corpse with a snake to, to encourage the soul to get back in. She issues, issues more threats to the gods. And actually, my favorite threat is to, as, as you're probably aware, Hecate is kind of like the main goddess of the witches. 
the threat she makes to Hecate to compel Hecate to help help her get her spell working is she threatens to reveal her before the other gods without her makeup on. <laughs> this is the best. I would be furious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, you know, Lucan is an ironic, complex writer. So the, the middle class anxiety of it all, you know, it's, it's brilliant. So, and so, and so, yeah, so eventually, so after all that, Erykthe manages to get the, uh, the soul back into the body. And then she, and then the body has to be uprighted. And this is the symbolic, the symbolic return to life, as it were. To, uh, and very interestingly, when the body gets to its feet, it doesn't sort of clamber up using all four limbs as we would. It just springs onto its feet like that as a, a you know, as a rigid, rigid body, presumably rigor mortis. Um, but I'm pretty sure that that description uh, influence. I don't know if you know Nosferatu. Do you know that that yeah wonderful German expressionist classic Nosferatu? If you think about the scene where Dracula rises from his coffin, that's exactly how he does it. I'm sure that comes from Lucan. So the Lucan influenced not only Frankenstein but also Dracula. Uh, anyway, so so she finally gets the the, the corpse talking, and um, the corpse uh, basically says, "Well, why do you want to know who's going to win this, the civil war? I mean, because you're all going to die anyway. It's only a question of in what order." <laughs> I love this really salty corpse. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so creepy. Holy cow. It's so good. Like, it went to all this effort. <laughs> yeah, after all this effort. Yes, exactly. Yes. I mean, it's all. all... So, yeah, I mean, yes, often these, in these scenes of necromancy, the, the, the prophecies delivered are rather disappointing in some ways. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some, some nice rhetoric there. All the emphasis is on the, the process rather than the result, really. And uh, so when the corpse has said its piece, uh, Erichtho sort of pays the corpse by, by walking it into, onto a pyre and doing all, all due funeral rites for it so that it'll be completely sealed in the underworld and, and can't be bothered, can't be disturbed, the, go- the ghost can't be bothered, disturbed again. I am loving this because we've done so much on the Civil War and Sextus Pompey is absolutely a character that I think we should have covered more in the podcast. He just kind of, as Barry Strauss said in one episode, steals the show if you let him. It's amazing that this is a Sextus Pompey story. One more Sextus Pompey story that we can add to that lexicon. The corpse never says anything about who wins the Civil War, does he? I, I mean, do you know what? I can't, I can't remember if he hints at it, but um, to my recollection, it's all a bit obscure. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just wondering if, 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 he, if the corpse's prophecy was even correct. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, I mean, obviously, Lucan was writing long after, so he, he would have known. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> this is so fascinating. Was this, you mentioned witches doing this. Was this something that witches did? Were they known to be necromancers? Well, uh, I, th- I, think it's a, I think necromancy is, a, is an equal opportunities <laughs> pastime. I mean, you could say that already Circe is a, a mistress of necromancy. I mean, it's Circe that gives Odysseus the instructions for calling up the dead ghosts, the ghosts of the dead in the Odyssey. Uh, and he sort of leaves from her island to do it and then returns to her island for the debrief on it. She just reanimated the, a deer. I try to think. I mean, the other, I mean, the other great scenes of uh, necromancy. Yeah, well, yes, well, the old woman of, uh, of Besser and Heliodorus. Again, she's an, again, she's an old hag witch. Um, finally in the Greek, on the Greek side now, but uh, obviously very much post-Latin. In, in, I mean, Heliodorus is like 350. Well, Medea. Yes, that's reju- rejuvenation, isn't it? Yeah, which you could say is, is related to reanimation. Yes, I mean, otherwise we have Zatlas, the Egyptian priest, who's reanimating the dead Thelifrone in, in, uh, in Apuleius' Metamorphoses. 
so yeah so there's 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 there is a syndrome there um of uh yes again i think i think it probably goes both ways but there's yeah there's a there's a, there's a, a good little trend of portraits of witches reanimating i was really interested uh in learning more about the gods and goddesses who are associated with witchcraft and working magic in ancient greece and rome um yeah, well, in the Green Bunch of Papyri, I mean, anybody and everybody is exploited. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Hecate, yeah. Hecate, um, perhaps less frequently than you would imagine, but, uh, you know, she, she's in the mix with everybody else. Again, you know, not only Greek gods, but gods from all sorts of other religions as well. And she's called up by Medea in order to make her invincibility lotion for Jason in, in Apollonius of Rhodes. In terms of, uh, you might say, more ordinary people making their making their magic, again, the, the, the world of the curse tablets. The, again, the, the powers there tend to be clonic powers, under, you know, underworld powers. So Hermes, in particular, who, of course, who, who has the ability to pass between upper and lower worlds. So he's often, he's often appealed to. Demeter. We do occasionally get mentions of Hades and Persephone, people like that. Dionysus? Or not as much? Uh, he's well. I'm. I'm. I'm not on top of all these cursed tablets, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't. He's not. I'm not to my mind. He's not to my mind one of the the gods primarily appealed to. Because I know in the Orphic tradition, like he's got the. Well, yes, yes. Mm. <laughs> uh, so much we could say about that, couldn't we? <laughs> I have to say, I find Orphism utterly baffling and defeating. So it's. <laughs> I just. Mount. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a world of its own. I mean, people often think, well, you know, you know about magic, you ought to know about orphism, but um, no, really, something quite quite different. Yeah, I don't think it's something I'd want to I'd want to get into. Well, yeah, when we've we've done so many episodes on Dionysus, and it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm going to briefly say that there's this whole orphic branch, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, it's really interesting, just the the chthonic aspect of this magic, because curse tablets are kind of chthonic, right? Like they go into graves, they go into you know passages to the underworld, as people would have seen it. And we just talked about necromancy, which was within the realm of a witch's power. And um, you also mentioned that um, there are depictions of witches doing their spells in graveyards. So I'm wondering about that connection with witchcraft and the dead and the Chthonic realm, and is is that like a realm that witches drew upon a lot with their power? Well, uh, that is a connection that comes out in, again, in, in Roman literature, above all. Um, Roman poetry, above all. Oh, no, prose too, prose too. And again, I, I think this is probably, uh, I'm not sure about real life here, um, I think this is probably all part of the, uh, the Gothic horror agenda. <laughs> Of, of, uh, of the way Roman literature likes to portray, portray, portray witches. Yeah, so, I mean, they're often shown collecting body parts um, for, their, for their magical recipes. Um, and again, this, this does tie in with the world of cursing uh, again, because you need the body part in order to activate the, the, the ghost tied to the body part to do, to do the job for you. So before we get to the big description of, of, of Erichthos necromancy, which we, were, which we were talking about before, Looking at sort of their big build-up, uh, uh, full range of activities, and a lot of that is, you know, devoted to the, her collection of body parts. I mean, she lives in a tomb to start with, and when she decides she needs a certain muscle from a corpse that's hanging on a gibbet, uh, she jumps up and clamps her teeth onto it, and then hangs her body weight off it to, to pull the muscle free. I have got to read this wild passage. Oh my gosh! 
Yeah, yeah. Book book uh, book six. Yeah, uh, and again, she when she's again she's visiting a funeral and she pretends to to kiss the corpse, um, but actually what she's doing is she's getting her teeth in its mouth so that she can bite its tongue out. Again, for her for her purposes, you know. Is there some ritualistic reason she has to detach body parts with her mouth? Uh, I don't know. I I don't. Th- I, no, I think it's just uh, that's just Luke and sort of making her animalian, you know, making her bestial, I think. And uh, one of the witches in Latin elegy, now I, I'm afraid I can't tell you whether it's Tibullus or Propertius, she, she, she will wait in the open by a dead body. Uh, she will wait for a wolf to come along and help itself to a bit and then snatch the part from its mouth. So again, the mouth's again there. <laughs> but um, I think the point of that is that the vigorous ghosts are those that are denied burial attached to bodies that have been denied burial. And the most graphic form of the de- denial of burial is throwing a body out for the, the birds and the dogs to eat, as, as Homer would say. So I think that's the point. So once the wolf has got the relevant part, um, then that is sort of super unburied, as it were, and therefore super uh, super powerful. And that's, that's, that's why the, the, the witch will get it. Right, it's just like making, making a very feisty ghost. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly that. We think about an unburied body out, you know, like there was a reason they didn't do that because they, they knew even back then it could cause plagues and stuff. So like they were very aware of like making that ghost would be a problem by not burying it. And also like practically not burying it would mean that they would open themselves up to a maybe a plague or something, which we know is probably from like a rotting body getting into the water or something. But they would see it as a curse from the gods. Or vampires. Or vampires, obvious. Always vampires. Always with the vampires. <laughs> I mean, there's a great, great description also in Apuleius Metamorphoses about of, of, of witches. It's, it's a long, complex story which I won't, I won't go into all the details of. But there is a scene in which um, the local Thessalian again witches att- attempted to steal parts from a body which is laid out in in the private house the night before its burial. Uh, and what and what they want to do is they want to steal its nose and its ears. Stealing the nose and the ears makes a lot of sense, though, because if you think about the stuff that rots away first, it's that soft tissue. So the nose will disappear and the... The tongue, too. Yeah. Yeah, and the tongue. Yeah. You got to get it fresh. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so this young, this young man called Thelifrone is hired to watch, because they're in Thessaly, they know that, these, that the witches are going to try and get the body parts. So he's hired to watch the corpse overnight. And he's told that, you know, this is so important that if he fails in his task, right, uh, the law says, the local law says he has to make up the missing body parts from his own body. So in other words, he has to have his own nose cut off and stuck on the... What? I mean, who takes that job then? Like, (laughs) you couldn't pay me a lot. Maybe he was getting paid a lot. (laughs) Oh, yes, that was was the idea. Yes, he was a sort of, yes, he was a young man in, in, in... you know, in need of a bit of money. So, but yeah, yeah, so that's pretty bad. But it, it gets worse. It gets worse. Anyway, so so there he is. He's guarding the body. And then a witch who's who's transformed herself into a weasel. As one does. Right, as one does. Yeah. Penetrates the room, casts a sort of hypnotic spell over him and sends him to sleep. Right. Then the witches come in to, um, to, to take their body parts. Right. So, um, first of all, again, before they... For some reason, before they can take the body parts, they have to upright the corpse. Again, we were talking about that necromancy scene, weren't we? And so they do this by they call the, name, the corpse's name in order to, to, to put the corpse on its feet. And for, now, the corpse's name turns out to be Thelifrone, the same as the Watcher. 
So as they call as they as they call Felifrone, because the watcher is merely asleep, as opposed to the corpse being dead, he stands up first. They think it's the corpse. They cut his nose and ears off, and they replace them with wax prostheses to sort of to hide 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 their tracks. And um, again, so it's only, and it's only uh, later on the following day. It's another long and interesting story which I won't I won't go into the detail of. But again, the, what has happened is revealed by an act of necromancy on on the on the corpse. And the Watcher Thalifrone realises that he doesn't have any nose or ears anymore. Poor guy. I mean, well, that was going to happen anyway if they took the ears and the nose off the corpse. So, inevitable. Yeah, so we ended up in the same situation. Okay, so it's a metaphorical blinding. So your new book is about dragons, and we are thrilled about that. We're so excited to pick that up. Can you tell us about your research into dragons? And what was the biggest surprise you had while researching dragons as they appear in the West? Gosh. Um, well, I mean, I can, just, <laughs> I can just tell you what an ancient dragon is, um, uh, because again, again, your listeners are probably sat there thinking about a chap who has a long neck, maybe an, an animalian kind of head, a long neck, a fat body, four legs, a wings, a long tail, scaly, breathes fire. That image, that completely artificial construction, uh, was unknown um, in the ancient world. Um, but our tradition of dragons is continuous from 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 the ancient world. I mean, uh, it's a Greek word, dracon, which goes goes into Latin draco. And um, but for the ancients, a, um, a dragon was huge, a, a huge snake, a huge supernatural in some way snake, and in, and it was indeed fiery. Uh, it breathed fire. Actually, more often than that, it sort of projected fire from its eyes. It had fiery eyes, uh, but but they did breathe fire. Uh, other than that, well, they were they were marauding creatures usually, um, and you know heroes prove their metal by fighting them. So there's a lot there's a lot about ancient dragons which you would which you would still recognise, um, you know, post medieval dragon. I mean, the same word was applied. It should be said to all sorts of benign uh, creatures. Uh, again, the same word dracon. So uh, again, your listeners may be familiar with uh, Asclepius. Um, and the, the, the images of Asclepius, uh, he has his staff and a, a snake, a small snake, winding round it. But that's just a sort of little sign, little indicator that he is himself uh, really a, 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 a giant snake. And uh, we see him in his true form in, in, in Ovid's Metamorphoses when the Roman ambassadors go to um, Epidaurus to, to summon the god to come back to Rome to help them with their plague. And he appears in the form of this massive, benign dragon draco and um again he appears in his temple before them in this form and he nods graciously to them and he slithers down to the ambassador's boat at the harbor to indicate his willingness to return to rome with them lovely story actually so there are there are there are good dracontes too uh dracontes the plural of draco and in terms of and you might think well fine but how do we get from from there to here the ancient Greeks, alongside dragons, the ancient Greeks had sea monsters. The word is kertos. Um, gives us cetus, cetacean, the word cetacean, um, and, you know, dolphins, cetaceans. Kertos in Greek. Um, and that was a weird, goodness knows, frankly, where that came from, but that was a weird serpentine creature with an animalian head and, and big flippers, which looked, could look a bit wing-like, um, to be fair. So, um, in Christian literature, in Jewish and Christian literature, sea monsters and dragons got mixed up with each other. 
Um, so that sort of explains how, how, how dragons got the fat bodies. And also, also they could have, um, later on as well, sea monsters could have four legs, which gives us, gives us, uh, gives the dragon its sort of, its pair of, its initial pair of legs. And then also in Christian literature, um, from at least about, at least the fourth century, dragons and demons are being very strongly identified. So winged humanoid flying demons are being identified with dragons. And so I think that's how dragons get their wings. So that's, that's how it sort of evolves, um, into, into the shape that we know today. In some ways, it's obvious that it's cobbled together, but in, in other ways, it isn't because dragons are so natural to us and they have their own coherence and style, uh, and their own beauty. It must be said. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we think of, I mean, dragons are a paradox, aren't they? They're, they're designed to be the ultimate creature of terror, and yet actually we love them. And also we think they're, you know, we're be they're beautiful. I mean, again, the internet is full of all sorts of dragon art, you know, where these things are lovingly, lovingly tricked out. So, I mean, it is kind of, kind of an ancient story, too, that we, we find beauty in the things that terrify us. Yeah, 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 yeah. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It has been just such a pleasure talking to you about all of these creepy things, fascinating things. And I, I heartily recommend all of your books. I've used so many of them on our episodes and they're just a joy to read and they're fascinating and they will make you think about everything in the ancient world a little differently. Um, where can people find you, find your book? Uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug? When is your book out, your next book? Uh, the next book that will be of interest to your audience, goodness knows when that's going to be. It's going to be a long time. <laughs> but... Um, my books are uh, the easiest places Amazon, I suppose. <laughs> They're all in there. If you just put my name into Amazon, they'll come up, along with a curious book about football, which I didn't write. <laughs> somebody else did. There's that one guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He, yes, he, he really messes up my Google. Yeah. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so the, 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 well, there, are, there, are, there are three dragon books, actually. They're all from OUP, as is the werewolf book that you mentioned. The necromancy book is from. Is uh, from Princeton, and, but actually, actually, the book that would probably appeal most to listeners that have sort of you know uh, enjoyed the full sweep of of, of, of today's talk uh, would be my my source book, my source book on ancient magic, which is called Mag Magic, Witchcraft, and Ghosts. That's uh, also from OUP, as it happens. Thank you so much for coming on the show and enlightening us. And uh, listeners, we will see you next week talking about whatever it is we're going to talk about next. <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.